Well, it is especially my honor this morning to bring you God's word from this pulpit in this room. Good morning, brothers and sisters. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Kelton. I serve as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist Church. Uh, If you would, please open with me in your Bibles to, to the book of Galatians. To the book of Galatians. If you're uh, reading along in your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 972. 972. This morning, we begin a new sermon series, as has been typical for our our summer months. So we'll get back to Genesis uh, in August. But for June and July, we're going to be looking at eight of the letters of Paul, Galatians, all the way through 2 Timothy in, in order. And yes, you are hearing that right. Our ambition is to tackle one book a week for eight weeks. You might call what we're attempting to do uh, overview sermons. Our, our ambition is that they would still be expositional sermons, where the main point of the, the text is the main point of the sermon. We're exposing the meaning and applying it to our lives. It's just that for the next eight weeks, we're going we're gonna to handle much larger chunks of Scripture. Today, six chapters in the longest book we're handling, Galatians. You can, you can think of what we're doing as like flying at 40,000 feet, right? You notice different things when you fly over the Grand Canyon than you would hiking maybe the, the South Rim Trail, right? You won't see all the details from the, the plane, but it brings the whole landscape into, into view. And brothers and sisters, certainly the last 15 months have been Highly irregular in the life of our church. So our our hope, our prayer is that these eight weeks will remind us of our identity and purpose as Christ's body, the church. Consider it as a a post-COVID detox. Getting rid of all the toxins of our irregular life this past year. So this morning, the message of the book of Galatians, no other Christ. Before we start reading, though, would you please pray with me for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is appropriate for us to pause before we read your word to ask of your blessing. That by your spirit, you would reveal to us the same Christ that Paul proclaimed publicly as crucified. Lord, that we would despair of any righteousness of our own and by your word cling by faith to Christ, the only Savior from sin. Do this work for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, to note it officially, it's been 63 Sundays since we have gathered here in the main hall. Isn't it wonderful to have windows again? I forgot what natural light is like down in that basement. It's, it's no surprise, though, after, after more than a year, to, to forget details about what this room is like or, or what other aspects of life B.C. before COVID were, were like. I, I am sure some of you have been reminded in the past week about what traffic on 95 and Route 1 are like. It's, it's easy without intentional effort to, to forget, to let our, our minds drift away, as it were. Well, as unwelcome as the returning traffic is, there are far greater dangers in our neglect 
and what we might forget. We tend as, as humans with fallible minds, without intentional effort, to forget even the most important truths we could ever know. The good news of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection. And when we forget them, to, to abandon them. And sure, it's, it's not something that any of us would, would intentionally forget. But just like the details of this room, these truths require our deliberate and constant recollection to remember. That was the problem that, that faced the church in Galatia. And why Paul writes to them in this letter. He, he says that they are turning to another gospel by distorting the one that he had taught them. So he writes to remind them of the gospel, to get them back to center so that they don't fall out of and fall off of grace in Christ. And the, the truth is that that's, that's a danger for the church in, in every age, in every place, including ourselves. By neglect, by a thousand other priorities, or, or by false teachers to distort the gospel into something else. And since the gospel is the heart of our identity and unity as a church, our neglect would mean the end of the church as the church. So as we start, brothers and sisters, has the last year been marked by careful attention to the gospel or inadvertent neglect? The call of Galatians is clear, and our main idea this morning is this. Do not abandon Jesus Christ by trusting that works and not faith make you righteous before God. Do not abandon Jesus Christ by trusting that works and not faith make you righteous before God. This Galatian churches, they've, they've received the gospel from Paul, but, but we're now turning away from it to, to trust in their own works to earn God's favor. And that is, is no good news at all. Our works only earn God's curse. The message of Galatians, do not abandon Jesus Christ by trusting that works and not faith make you righteous before God. Let's start with Paul in, in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read the, the first nine verses. And, and as an aside, as, as always, you'll be, you be helped to, to keep your Bibles open. We're not going to read all of Galatians this morning, but we're going to read throughout. So, so keep your Bibles open. But let's read Galatians starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word of the Lord. Well, if, if you want to know the message of Galatians in a nutshell, it's right here in these nine verses. First, 
Look at verse 1. This letter is from Paul. But the message that he brings is, is not Paul's. He, he calls himself there an, an apostle. Apostle is, is a messenger. So he brings someone else's message to these churches. And, and it's God's message. And second, we see there that he's writing in verse 2 to the churches of Galatia. These multiple churches are found in this Roman province in what is in modern-day Turkey. Paul had, had visited this area in his missionary journeys where he, he preached the gospel and, and planted churches. And so he writes to these churches in verse 3 and 4 of the gospel. Look there again in those verses with me. He greets them with grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are, are not what they deserve, but are theirs because... Jesus gave himself for their sins. This right here, verse 4, is a, a two dozen word summary of the message of the whole book. What is at the heart of his message to the Galatians? It's, it's the gospel. The good news that, that Jesus died in our place for our sins and that according to God's plan. But he doesn't linger there. Normally, Paul's letters begin with some prayer or thanksgiving. Well, Galatians is, is unique in that Paul immediately moves to, to rebuke, to correction in verse 6. This tone of, of correction will mark the whole letter. Paul astonished, perplexed, and, and earnest. And the problem is summarized for us there in verses 6 through 9. They are quickly deserting him who called them into his grace. Notice how many terms Paul piles on in these few verses. They're turning to a different gospel. They're distorting the gospel. There's a gospel contrary to the one that had been preached by Paul. It seems that since he's left, some false teachers have come in who are troubling them, who want to distort the gospel. And the purity of that gospel is so important to Paul that he says even if it were him or an angel from heaven preaching a contrary gospel, that that person should be accursed. That they should have God's divine disapproval and opposition. Brothers and sisters, as we start, the, the purity of the gospel is of imper first importance to Paul because it's of first importance to God. Distorted gospels don't just earn Paul's disapproval. They earn God's disapproval. And love for Paul means, means correction, pointing out their errors and the dangers therein. And his, his first step to prove that the gospel that, that he preached, not the gospel of these false preachers, to prove that, that his gospel is the authentic gospel is to show that, that his gospel is from God. So this morning in, in verses, in chapter 110 all the way through 214, Paul's gospel is from God. Paul's gospel is from God. The whole first part of this letter is biography, but it's biography with a purpose, to prove the authenticity of the gospel that, that he had preached to them. Right? Paul's gospel is from God. Read with me chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. His first claim here is that he did not receive the gospel from, from any man, but directly in a revelation from Jesus Christ. You know, when we want the highest quality goods, we look at their source. Who made it? Where did they make it? Well, Paul's source for, for the gospel that he preaches was Jesus himself. It doesn't get any better than that. You can read about this in, in Acts 9 with his encounter uh, with Jesus on the Damascus Road. In the next few verses, he reminds them of his former life in Judaism as a persecutor, a murderer of Christians. Surely someone like this would not make up a message about Jesus. Well, after that, his, his second claim is that his gospel was confirmed by the apostles. At first, after his conversion, he says in, in verses 16 and 17, he, he didn't consult with anyone about the gospel, not even the apostles. In verse 18, and after three years, he goes up and, and sees Peter, but, but only Peter. Well, let's read in, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, although privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, jump down to 6 and 7. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, well, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What we see here, finally, after 14 years of ministry, he goes to Jerusalem privately and presents the gospel to the apostles, the, those who seemed influential. He wanted to make sure that, that all these 17 years of labor were not empty. Well, what happens? Well, those who seemed influential added nothing to his gospel. In fact, they assess his ministry as the right hand of Peter's ministry. Well, as if it needed it. After being received by revelation from Jesus Christ, his gospel has the apostles' quality assurance stamp. Approved by the apostles. But that's not all Paul says here in the first part of his letter. Even more to prove that his gospel is from God, Paul makes a, a third claim. That his gospel actually has authority even over the apostles. In the next section, in verses 11 through 14, he, he describes an episode where, where Peter comes to him. And Peter is not living in step with the gospel. And Paul actually rebukes Peter. And this episode gets us to the heart of the, the confusion of the gospel that the Galatian churches were facing. 
You see, Jewish law forbade Jews from eating certain foods and eating with Gentiles. But the gospel changed that. You see, what, what happened was... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the Peter had received a revelation in, in Acts chapter 10. Right? You remember that, that there in that chapter... God revealed to him to eat the unclean foods. And, and Peter was, was ashamed of that. He said, no, never, Lord. Paul should have understood, or Peter should have understood that, that by this, no things are unclean. Foods, the Gentiles, these cultural laws are no longer required. You didn't need to obey these laws in order to be accepted by God. But what happens with Peter here in chapter 2, 11 through 14, is he, he's no longer acting like that. Paul says that he's acting hypocritely, like a hypocrite. You see that, that Paul's gospel had so much authority that he could even rebuke the apostles, correct Peter himself. So right from the start in his letter... Paul wants us to understand that the message that he brings in this letter is not man's gospel. His gospel is from God. He received it by revelation. It was authenticated by the apostles. And even has authority to rebuke Peter. The gospel that he's about to present to remind the Galatians of is from God himself. So we'd better pay attention. Brothers and sisters, I, I asked you this morning, how does that land on you? That the message we proclaim here, that the, the truths we confess as a church are not something that we came up with. Their origins is not in our preferences or our, our culture. They are from God himself. Our message, if, if we are faithful, is from Christ himself. And that's, and that's a big deal. How urgently and attentively would you read a handwritten letter from the person that you love most? Well, it's that kind of attention that you should give to God's word this morning. So I ask, is that what describes your attention to God's word this morning? If not, what is it that is preventing you, that is keeping you? From listening to this message as if from God himself. What Paul is about to tell us in Galatians is from God. And to get it wrong calls for God's disapproval and opposition to be accursed. Pay attention. Well, after presenting the credentials of his message, Paul explains his message. Corrects their misunderstandings. He gets to the heart of his point, the truth of the gospel. So in chapter 2, 15, all the way through 4, 13, nearly two and a half chapters, the way of justification. The way of justification. Verses 15 and 16 might be the best two-verse summary of the book. Paul's summary of the heart of the issue. Even though Paul is a Jew, the good news is that we're not made right with God by, by law, but by faith. Read with me chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, there it is in in simple terms. A, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to be so clear that he repeats the contradiction three times in this verses. Not by works of the law, but by faith, by belief in Jesus Christ. At the heart of the gospel, and and therefore this letter, is the idea of how a person is justified. If you're new to the Bible and with us this morning, thank you so much for being with us. To understand the the message of the Bible, you have to be familiar with this term, justification. Justification, to be justified, means to be declared right. In fact, if you're reading the ESV, there's a a little note there in verse 16 that says that justified can also be translated or count righteous. Justification deals with the idea of how sinners can be made right before God, righteous before God. The great dilemma at the the center of the Bible is that, that God is holy and we are not. Though God made us perfect and blameless in His image, Adam and Eve chose to to rebel, to sin against God and and became sinners. Now every human being inherits their sinful nature from their parents. We are all sinners. We love by nature what, what God hates and we hate what God loves. Well, since God is good, He can't just wink at our sin and ignore it. He doesn't overlook our evil. No, God opposes it. So how is it that an unholy people, sinners like us, can have any hope of being restored to God, having a relationship with Him? Is it maybe by the good things we do? We stop doing the unrighteous, start doing the righteous, and therefore earn our way back to God? How? How can we be justified? Well, verse 16 is the red-hot center of Paul's answer, his message from God, we are declared righteous before God, not by things we do, but by, by works of law, but by through faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous before God, not by things we do, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Works of the law means obedience to, to all of what God has commanded. Yes, The Ten Commandments through Moses. But the primary example in this letter is actually the command to be circumcised, given to Abraham. Well, if if that's his thesis, then all the way through through chapter 4 is his argument proving his thesis, the way of justification. He first immediately applies this to himself. right? He says that, that he, that Paul, lives a life by faith. And in a statement of great intimacy... Paul can say that Jesus loved me, a Jew, and gave himself for me. My righteousness is not in works of the law, but in Jesus' death for me. Friends, the gospel is not just true for all people. It is true for you in particular. 
Jesus' love is not just for humanity as a group in general, but for people in particular. Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. You'll notice here in these last verses, especially in verse 20, how Paul uses language that makes it seem like the events of Christ's life happened to him. Look at at verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, clearly he's not talking about history. There were two men crucified with Christ, and neither of them was the apostle Paul. Well, what he means here is that, that spiritually, as Christians, we are united to Christ. Our sinful self was put to death with Christ in his crucifixion. Our new life began when Christ was raised from the dead. We are united to Christ by faith. It's like Christ is the envelope and we the letter. We are in him spiritually. I want to point this out because Paul is going to sprinkle this idea throughout his letter. In all the letters that we're going to study this summer... So, so stay tuned throughout the summer in these letters to the churches to, to what our union with Christ means. Here in Galatians, one of the benefits of our, our union with Christ is, is justification, being declared right in Christ. And as he, he moves into chapter 3, he's going to make three particular claims about the way of justification. First, the justification is by faith and not by works. Second, justification is by promise, not law. And third, the justified are sons, not slaves. So, so first, the justified, or sorry, justification is by faith and not by works of the law. So read with me first, uh, Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2. 3, 1 and 2. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul first goes to the evidence of their own conversion and growth. He asks, does does the gift, did you receive the gift of the Spirit by hearing with faith or by works? He's talking about the gift of the Spirit at conversion. Everyone who has been converted to Christ has this as evidence. The gift of the Spirit came by faith, not by works. Justification is by faith, not works. But that's, that's not all. That's just the beginning. In verse 6, Paul, Paul quotes the Old Testament to show us this is exactly what the Bible had predicted. He's going to use six quotations from the Old Testament to show that it too taught that, that justification could never come By works of the law. Look again at at verse 6. His primary example is is Abraham. What we read earlier in in Genesis 15. There where God counts Abraham as righteous because of his faith in God's promise. So true sons of Abraham are those who have a faith like him. Even when they're, they're Gentiles, not Jews. In verses 10 through 14, Paul goes on to say that the law, attempting to to obey it, it only brings curses, not the blessing of Abraham. Look with me at, at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, here in another quote from the the Old Testament, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 6, to show that the law required perfect obedience. If you did not abide by one single commandment, it brings God's curse. And Paul's assumption, of course, is that, that no one can possibly obey every commandment. So if you rely on works of the law, what does Deuteronomy 27 say? It says you will be cursed. The law is a guillotine over our heads, only threatening death. But the beauty of what Paul goes on to say is that in union with Christ, he took the curse for us. Read with me verses 13 and 14. Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you, do you see it again? Union with Christ. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes. The Old Testament said that the disobedient were to be judged by hanging on a tree. So Christ hung on a tree for us to suffer our curse because we cannot obey the law. But Jesus obeyed it perfectly. And by union with him, we receive the promised blessing, not the threatened curse. Well, he keeps going. In verse 15, he he moves to his second claim about justification. Through verse 29, the word promise shows up nine times. It's clearly his, his theme in this next section. And his claim is that justification is through promise, not the law. Essentially, after showing us that reliance on the law only brought curse... Paul wants to answer the question, well, well, then why the law if it only brings curse? You see that in, in verse 19. Look at it there. Why then the law? This whole section is answering that question. And to do so, he gets into a history lesson. He reminds us that the promise to Abraham came first in history. This is the promise that we studied recently in, in Genesis 12. The very great promises that that blessing would come to all families through an offspring of Abraham. And the law, the law, he says, came later, 430 years after the promise to Abraham. He means the, the law covenant made with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. This earlier promise, the promise to Abraham, was made in particular, he says, to an offspring, to one being Jesus. God gives his blessings by promise, not through the law. Well, so then why the law? If it can't make us righteous, what the heck's the point? Well, to boil it down, read with me verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law, he he calls it a guardian. A guardian was a specific term in Paul's culture. It was a slave responsible for a child's training 
particularly for pointing out and, and correcting misbehavior. And that's what he's saying the, the law was for. The, the law was like a guardian. It pointed out and, and punished our misbehavior, our sin. It was never meant to offer life and salvation. It was meant to, to lead us to Christ. The solution to the sin and the punishment that the law pointed at. By faith, not by works. Justification is by promise, not law. Now Paul goes on to his, his third claim about justification. In some sense, it starts in, in this section and it moves into chapter 4. Here, his claim is that justified are our sons and not slaves. He fills this argument with his language of, of union with Christ. He says, in Christ Jesus, we are sons of God. We are baptized into Christ. We put on Christ. We are all one in Christ. Verse 28 is a statement of our absolute union in Christ. Read it with me. Chapter 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse doesn't mean these distinctions are erased when we become Christians. For example, we, we certainly are still male and female. What he's arguing here is that God's acceptance of us is not only without regard to our works, but also without regard to our ethnicity. It is for Jew and Gentile. Without regard to our economic status, slave or free, or our gender, male or female, we are all one and equal, all declared righteous by faith in Christ. So he says in verse 29, by faith in Christ, we are offspring. We are heirs. In other words, we are family, not slaves. Paul dedicates most of chapter 4 to, to highlighting our, our privileged status as adopted children of God. And at the end of that chapter, he uses an illustration from Genesis to show that we are children of the promise. Let's start right by reading chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 4, 1 and 2. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Well, he again uses the metaphor of a guardian. Even though heirs own everything that their parents have, while they're children, while they're under a guardian, they're just like slaves, he says. But in time, they are freed and inherit what is theirs as children. Well, that's his argument. So with the law and Christ... When we were under the law, under our guardian, well, none of it was ours until we are freed by Christ and we receive adoption as sons. The justified are sons, not slaves. And none of this is by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. In that middle section of chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, Paul pauses his argument to express his deep concern for the Galatians. It's where we learn in, in verse 13 that, that the reason he came to, to preach the gospel to them was because of some unnamed sickness. Friends, sickness may be the very means God uses to bring the gospel to others. 
Even sickness is used for his good. But, but Paul, he says, is now perplexed there in verse 20. He is in anguish over them, wanting to see Christ formed in them again. He wishes he could visit them and, and change his tone. So he returns to his argument, verse 21. And he uses an allegory here. I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it for us. He, he uses Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, to show the difference between slaves and sons. Remember, Ishmael was his son through his slave, uh, that's Abram's slave, Hagar. Slaves, those who are under the law of Sinai, are cast out like Ishmael was. Sons, those are, who are in Christ by faith, well, they stay a part of the family. They receive the promised inheritance. The point, the justified are sons, not slaves. Why would you want to return to slavery by relying on works of the law? The Galatians had adopted a distorted gospel that, that says that we are made righteous by works of the law. They wanted to return to slavery. Paul in these chapters brings all the force he can to show that all of our works can never, never rescue us. Justification is by faith, not by works of the law. It is by promise, not law. We are sons, not slaves. The truth that Paul is teaching here in these chapters is what, what the German reformer Martin Luther called the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. He said this about justification. When the, article, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Church, there are few things more important than this distinction between faith and works. So I asked Stafford Baptist, what makes you feel good about yourself? What makes you feel like you are at peace with God? Well, we just studied it. You, you know the right answer, what you should say. I'm, I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking for the true answer. What do you truly rest on for your right standing with God? In the day to day, I think too often we look down for our peace. What I mean is I think we, we go, well, I go to church, I give, I serve, I read my Bible, I pray, I don't cut people off, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal. I, I, I. Brothers and sisters, Paul says that any good news that looks down is to be cursed. It is a lie from the pit of hell. You can never merit peace with God by what you do. Our works only bring condemnation. 
God deserves and demands perfection. And our very best is never enough. But if that sounds hard, listen to Paul again. You are not righteous. You cannot earn righteousness, but he will declare you righteous by faith in Jesus Christ because of his love for you. Your sin deserves hell, eternal wrath. But he poured out that wrath on Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus died the death that you do deserve. Every bit of God's righteous indignation against our selfishness and lust and greed and anger and pride. Now, by faith in the death of Christ, you can receive his righteousness. His obedient life is credited to you by faith. Justification doesn't mean you are righteous. It means you have been declared righteous before God. And if he declares it, who can bring any charge against God's elect? We do not look down to anything we do, but up to our righteousness in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. This message of justification, Paul's message from God, is utterly distinct from all world religions. All other religious systems teach that, that man works his way back to God. Only Christianity, only true religion from God teaches that our only hope is to be declared righteous by faith in a perfect sacrifice. There are only two options by law or by grace. The way of justification church is by faith, not by works. So this morning, brothers and sisters, put your faith on the only bedrock of hope, Jesus Christ, not your works. And the good news is you will be declared righteous before God eternally. And you will be given in him the freedom of the spirit. After reminding the Galatians of the true gospel, Paul goes on to teach them how it, how it should change their life. So in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to 6.10, freedom in the spirit, he teaches. Freedom in the spirit. I hope you still have your Bibles open. Read with me. Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is going to finish his letter by teaching us to use the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from the law. Freedom from condemnation. That we are to stand firm in this freedom. And in this part of his letter, he's going to make three points about our freedom. Two dangers, threats to our freedom. And one positive way to use our freedom. So he's going to say that freedom must not be lost through legalism. Must not be abused through license. And freedom must be expressed through service. Not lost through legalism, not abused through license, and finally must be expressed through service. So first, freedom must be not lost through legalism. Look at verse 4. Galatians 5, 4. 
You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's, that's strong language. Severed from Christ. How? Well, by trying to be made right with God by, by the things we do. This flows right out of the argument before. Right? If you're trying to be made right by law-keeping, well, you've, you've lost your freedom. Worse, if this is your settled position, trusting your works before God rather than Christ, well, your destiny is eternal condemnation. There is no grace. We might call this legalism. It's the subtle emphasis that, that our behavior makes us right before God. Certainly our, our obedience and disobedience pleases and, and grieves God. But if you are united to Christ by faith and, and therefore justified, your acceptance is based on what he did, not what you do today. Stafford Baptist, do you trust your works to make yourself more acceptable to God? Or on the flip side, do you despair when you fail, thinking you've lost your acceptance with God? That is legalism. It's contrary to the gospel. That's tying your status on your performance, not Jesus. And Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery as if God is watching you with an ethereal clipboard in heaven, just waiting, waiting for us to mess up so he can condemn us. No, you are justified by faith in Christ. Well, wonderful, you might think. But, but wait, but wait. If we have that kind of freedom, what will keep us from doing just whatever we want? I'm right with God. Well, that's the second threat to our freedom. Freedom must not be abused through license Look with me at verse 13, chapter 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom, he says, is not opportunity for the flesh. The flesh here means sinful nature. If you look down at verses 19, he, he lists the work of the flesh. What is this flesh like? Well, he says... There, 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, Paul is concerned with what we do. But it is not the basis of our justification. Such strong language here. He says when he warns them. The legalist is severed from Christ. And now the, the licentious is warned. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Your eternal destiny is condemnation. Brothers and sisters. We are not from slavery. To live our lives as we please. We are to live, Paul says, by the Spirit. The Spirit that is at, in the heart of every believer. The New Covenant is described by Jeremiah as the law within us. 
the law written on our hearts. So every believer with the Spirit lives in step with that Spirit, the law inside us by the Spirit. Of course, what Paul is saying here doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. He says clearly, the desires of the flesh in verse 17 are against the Spirit. We still have these desires. But what direction are you trending? Do you give yourself to the flesh or to the Spirit? Our freedom must not be lost through legalism, abused through license. No, it is rather to be expressed through service. That's how Paul ends his letter in the first part of chapter 6. We saw this contrast back in chapter 5, verse 13. Instead of using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, we are through love to serve one another. So in chapter 6, he, he paints a picture of what that's like, filled with imperatives and commands how we are to live by the Spirit with one another. Yes, Christians are not under the law, but, but that doesn't mean there is no place for commands. Justified people live by the Spirit to please God more and more. Read with me chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. At the end of his list of exhortations, his final, do good. Do not grow weary of doing good. Do good to everyone. Do good especially to those of the household of faith, other Christians. That's pretty generic, isn't it? Do good. How much can you fit under that umbrella of doing good? Say a prayer. Give a cup of water. Weep with. Forgive. Make a meal. Write a letter. Set up the main hall. Serve in childcare. On and on and on. Do good. Do not grow weary of doing good. Not in order to be loved and accepted by God. No, that has been accomplished once and for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot be more or less accepted by God than you already are in Christ Jesus by faith. No, we do good and continue to do good because we are now adopted sons of our Father, a God who is good. And we are being renewed by His Spirit after His image. We are being restored to what we were made for, to know and be like our God. Paul closes his letter in verse 11 by taking the pen from his clerk and writing for himself. And with a final warning about these false teachers, he, he calls these Galatians and, and us today to be like him by, by boasting only in Jesus. Read with me 6.14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Put no confidence in the flesh. Our, our good works, our only boast, our only hope, the center of our purpose and identity as a church is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to conclude our service today by expressing exactly that confidence in Christ by, by eating together the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper.
Where is your confidence today, brothers and sisters? Cling to Jesus Christ, trusting that by faith you are declared righteous before God today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we make it our boast this morning, only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we despair of any works that our flesh can do. Lord, nothing that we can do can bring your divine approval, only curse. Lord, our only hope for justification before you, to be declared righteous, is the perfect righteousness of Christ, given to us by faith. Lord, we praise you that he bore our curse in the cross so that we might receive your blessing through promise as sons and daughters. Lord, we pray today that our confidence would not be in what we do, but what Christ has done for us once and for all. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.